This is Psalm 127. This is God's Word. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, as we come now to the preaching of your word, I ask, as I have asked already today, that you would enable me, your servant, to draw forth from these words both new and old lessons for your people. We pray that you would meet us where we are at, whether we are seeking or whether we're discouraged or whether we're tired or whether we're excited. Lord, wherever we're at, we pray that this message today, these words, would meet us and minister to us and encourage us in our faith and in our journey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Pastor Dennis called me in that one moment yesterday where I wasn't doing anything and said, are you busy tomorrow? And because I wasn't doing anything at the time, I said, sure, no problem. He was wise, though. He's a good friend. He called my wife first. <laughs> so praise God for that. And um, I love to preach. I thank you for the opportunity to minister to you on occasion and for your encouragement. I very much appreciate that. I did preach this sermon, a version of this sermon, a few weeks ago when I was out of town, and um, I've customized it for us, so I hope it's helpful to you. The theme of my sermon today, and actually the title as well, is vanity. What comes to mind when I say that word, vanity? Maybe spending too much time in the mirror? God is going to speak to us from his word about this idea of vanity. And in fact, the word appears. If you're looking at Psalm 127, you can notice or even count how many times this word appears in the psalm. I find it interesting that the psalm is one of the few psalms that is written not by David or by one of the other psalmists, psalm writers, like Asaph, for example. This psalm is written by whom? By Solomon. So Solomon knows a little bit about vanity, I think. I read a funny comic recently. It had two panels. I like those because it doesn't require a lot of thought. In the first panel, it showed a woman who was very fit, in great shape, looking at herself in the mirror. And in the mirror, it showed a woman that was not fit at all, that was extremely overweight and... and that's what she saw in the mirror. The other panel of the, of the comic, which is the funny one, 
showed a man who was extremely overweight and not fit at all. And guess what he saw in the mirror? <laughs> he saw a stud. That's how van vanity works, isn't it? And it is often funny in other people. But when it comes to ourselves, it's not always as funny. And I think when vanity is taken to an extreme, it's not funny at all, as when, for instance, people will turn to surgery in pursuit of their hopes and dreams. In one bizarre example I read recently about a report from Texas A&M sociologist a few years back who said, and I quote, it is customary for upper-class parents in one major metropolitan area to give their daughters breast implant surgery as high school graduation gifts. It is explicitly recognized that the young women will get more dates and be more popular in college if they have larger breasts. I was startled when I read that, and it makes me think that there's more going on when we talk about vanity than meets the eye. We might even say, if beauty isn't skin deep, neither is vanity. There's more at stake than just our weight or our figures. I like to watch movies, and movies actually provide lots of great examples of vanity run amok. As a case in point, I thought of a movie that I watched really for the first time a couple of years ago, classic trilogy, <laughs> The Godfather. <laughs> and the third film of The Godfather has probably one of the most poignant, anticlimactic final scenes in all of modern cinema. The character in The Godfather is Michael Corleone, and he's successfully escaped one close call after another and has managed to suppress, to sideline, or to outright murder anyone who has stood in his way, friend or family alike. In this final scene, he's seated on a chair in his estate in Sicily, old, weak, and alone. And in the scene, he falls off the chair, dead, fade to black. And if you could superimpose any one of Jesus' words over that final black scene, I think it would be this. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? I think these words are apt for Michael Corleone. What did it profit him? If he could say five words today, maybe he'd choose these from Solomon. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That certainly was his experience, and we can agree with this idea in mind that vanity is more about the heart than the way you look, isn't it? It's more about what's going on inside of us than what's going on outside of us. As I said, it's more than skin deep. At the end of the day, I think vanity has less to do with fashion and more to do, empty fashion that is, and more to do with empty lives. You know, the problem with this idea is that none of us think of ourselves as living empty lives. 
I mean, if someone were to come up to you and say, how you doing? Did you know that you're living a meaningless life? <laughs> Not a great opening line for an evangelistic encounter. We go about our day-to-day -day lives, I believe, as if our lives were suffused with a meaning, as if our lives were full and rich and significant. But our, our, our secret belief about these very lives is often different. Our secret thoughts about the lives that we lead often don't match. When we stop and think about the reality, it's uncomfortable. I told one of my children what I was preaching on today, and um, this child read text and said, Papa, I bet your favorite verse is verse 5. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. <laughs> and I said, I do feel that way sometimes. <laughs> At other times, not so blessed. <laughs> no, the psalm is divided into two sections, and that verse comes in the second section of the psalm. I would think of that as the application section of the psalm. One application of this psalm, but I, I'm going to focus on the first half of the psalm where every area of life, in fact, is described. If you look at it, it talks about building and our domestic lives by implication. It talks about our local, regional, and national defenses, watching over the city. It talks about our jobs, getting up early. Anybody can relate to that? Uh, talks about sleepless nights, not having enough time in the day to get everything done. <laughs> you know, eight days a week, 26 hours in the day is pretty much all I need. Eating the bread of anxious toil, I, I read there, worrying about finances, worrying about relationships, worrying about situations, circumstances. I also thought of that as I thought about reworking the sermon one more time last night. But no, the Lord's in charge here. I don't need to stay up to all hours of the night. He's going to bring a, his word to his people. So it has a lot of implications. We're going to focus on verse 1 because I think that's at the center of what this psalm is trying to say. Verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I think it's important, first of all, to notice what is going on here? And that will serve loosely as my first point. What's happening here? Something is being built. This is a hypothetical question. It's a, it's a statement. It's, it's actually fairly complicated in the way, rather not complicated, but complex. But so, I believe something's happening. The builders are full on in the midst of the construction project. If you can imagine it with me for a moment. Supplies are on the job site. Everyone is busy. The plumbers are fitting in the pipes. The electricians are pulling the wire. The carpenters are framing out the walls. The drywall hangers are hanging the sheetrock. And everyone is about their business. The laborers are sweeping up, gathering, bringing things, bringing wood, throwing stuff away. Everyone is very meaningfully employed. But notice what the text tells us 
unless the Lord builds this house that I've described to you, the builders labor in vain. Solomon doesn't say that they're not building anything. He doesn't say that you'll never be able to start out. He doesn't say that you can't order stuff from Home Depot. He doesn't say that you can't sell the house that you've built and make a profit at it. He doesn't say that it won't be a decent place to live for the people who buy the house. He doesn't even suggest that it will be ugly or that it will fall down in the middle of the night unexpectedly. He doesn't say that. What he does say is that they may be building, but they are building without meaning. That's what he's saying. It's vain labor. It's empty labor. It's hollow. It's without ultimate significance. I think that's quite an audacious claim. And if I were to go up to the job site foreman and say, did you realize that what you're doing is meaningless? I'd imagine if he didn't punch me, he'd turn around and ignore me as some goofball. Which brings up an important point, I think. Solomon is not denying that there's meaning in building a house. There is meaning. It's a meaningful thing to do. Houses provide shelter. Houses provide a location where people can gather for parties and for sad times and for, for conversations, privacy, keeping our things. But I would suggest that this meaning is meaning with a small m. Think of it as, in a Google sense, the map is zeroed in to the, to the closest zone. It's the biggest picture. It shows just one line right in the star where your street is. But as you draw back on that magnifying glass, you find that after you go two or three clicks, there's nothing. That there's meaning at the small, microscopic level, at the day-to-day, -day, at the ant level, okay? But as we draw back into the, into the bigger questions of life, that meaning evaporates to the point of being non-existent. I worked as, a, as a, uh, a construction job site laborer when I was in high school during the summers. And to give you an example of something that's meaningless to sort of illustrate my point, uh, I, I was given a job of painting the curbs in a newly paved parking lot. It's fascinating work, trust me. And uh, it's bright yellow curb paint, you know, the thick stuff that's almost like concrete. I mean, it's just, it doesn't come off of anything. And because I was 16 or 17 and a conscientious young man, I was going to do a good job on these curbs. And so the boss left me with a ton of paint and a ton of rollers, and he came back at break time or lunchtime to see how I was doing. Well, I had painted 15 or 20 feet of curb very well. He was livid, though, furious. I mean, if, if I could draw a picture and a cartoon, he'd be hopping up and down. What are you doing? You were supposed to be done by lunch. You've got 20 feet done, and there's 150 feet to go. I had painted that curb very well, but without a lot of meaning from his point of view. It didn't matter. 
it didn't matter at all because the point was to, as he showed me, just to slop the stuff on and to get it done. I was painting in vain because I didn't get the directions, did I? I think lives are like that, that we are very intent on what we're doing. We're doing it well. We're doing it with meaning as far as we understand it. But we haven't stopped to get the directions. We haven't stopped to ask directions to find out if this is what we've been, in, we've been called or intended to do. How does God want the house to be built? How does God want house life to be lived? How does God want life to be lived? We can have all the minor meaning in the world, but according to the text, in order for the builders to build meaningfully, it has to be the Lord that sets the major meaning, the meaning with a capital M. So that's, I think, what the text says. Loosely then, my second point is, what does this mean for us? This doesn't mean that God has to take out hammer and nails, although I did reflect that there was probably a house or two built by God because Jesus was a carpenter, wasn't he? But if that's what it meant, then there'd only be two or three people who could fit into this text, right? Unless Jesus built your house, you're out of luck. That's not what this means. Even Noah had to build his own ark. So what this is talking about is maybe something like this. To have the Lord build your house means to put God in first place in your life. So some people will have a, a house dedication service, right, when they move in to their home. They might even have a door knocker or a sign hanging on the door. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They might have family devotions. See, the Lord is building our house. But the fact of the matter is, and this is my conviction, that so many of these things that we would attribute as putting God first in our life are equivalent to spiritually looking at ourselves in the mirror. That so many of these activities that look like God is in first place are in fact spiritual vanity. Now, does that mean that that's what we mean when we do them? Are we trying to be false? Are we trying to be fake? No. Again, if I were to tell you that your life has no meaning, you'd be offended. And that's because we wouldn't do it if we didn't see meaning in it. To illustrate this, I thought of the parable of the prodigal son. Now, clearly in this parable, the younger son who asked for his father's inheritance, he goes off and spends it. Here's a guy that really needs to hear the sermon this morning, right? This is a guy who needs to know that he's wasting his life, that he's spending it on frivolous things, you know, superficial things, sort of like the people that I mentioned in the opening illustrations. But really, Jesus is speaking the parable not so much about the younger brother because the younger brother comes home. The younger brother gets saved in the parable. The older brother is the one who, who stays in the family business, who keeps going to his parents' church, who likely has family devotions in the evening, who is trained in theology and understands the scriptures, and who's working hard and shows up to work early and, and does all of these meaningful things. He's the one who doesn't get saved in the parable. He's the one who's in despair in the parable. He's the one who's angry in the parable. He's the one who has a vain existence, I believe. Another example, just to prove that this isn't an isolated example, Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, 
Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. There's a warning sign right there, huh? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The one whose house in this parable that's in shambles is the one who looks like he's got it all together. The one who's building in vain is not the one that you'd think. It's the other one. Those who humble themselves are exalted. So I think to have God build your house means that you begin first by acknowledging that we are helpless apart from God. And if that's what you meant when I asked, what did this mean? Then that's the right answer. It's not by putting God first necessarily, because that can mean all kinds of things. It means putting God first in this way. I am nothing. I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I am helpless. I am poor. I am blind. I am unable to find my way. I cannot commend myself to you, God. I cannot bring myself close to you, Lord. I can't, by what I do, put in a good word for you, good word for myself. So my third point, roughly speaking, is to highlight this, and I'm calling it our gospel need. This is the gospel. We love the gospel because, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, there were not many wise according to the flesh. There were not many mighty. There were not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man, no woman, no child may boast before God. I think what I tend to forget as an American Christian is that this text is speaking about me. Think about it. I am trained in theology. I have, a, I, I have mastered theology. I am a religious, I, I am a, I'm a cleric. I have a job in the religious system. I am, I'm part of the paradigm. You see? I'm a Pharisee. That is the people that Jesus was attacking. Those are the people that were confident of their own righteousness. We largely are people as American Christians that are well-to-do. We have our stuff. We have our systems. We have our beliefs. It's all in place. And friends, I hate to say this, but Presbyterians really know their beliefs. And you see, what God is saying to us here is that all of that, God does not choose in a manner of speaking. He chooses what is not 
so that we have nothing to boast about before Him. For some people of faith, it's very easy to identify the vain life of the parents and of the girl that I mentioned in my opening illustration. Or to identify vanity in the life of someone like the notorious Michael Corleone. As Yoda might say, hard it is to see vanity in our own religious activity, in our own spiritual lives, in our own churches, in our own ministers. It is hard to see that the things that we have might actually spring from a guilty conscience rather than from a heart that is set free by grace for poor, broken, and crippled sinners desperately in need of Jesus. I don't think I would bet a dollar, okay, so I'm going out on the limb here, that none of you said, I'm going to earn my way to heaven today by coming to church. So did I win a dollar? See, if everyone gives me a dollar, then I'm going to... Actually, it's a good bet. I don't think any of you said that today. And yet, for all intents and purposes, I guess my point is this. That's how we act at times. We are the ones who are tempted to think that it is our wisdom, our efforts, our goodness, and our sophistication, our activities, our family values. These things, these vain things, which bring us into the kingdom of heaven. You know, surprise is a key part of this point. I like the show. Um, actually, that's not true. I'm addicted to the, to the show on HGTV. And the reason that I'm addicted is if you notice it, 10 minutes to the hour, they run, the, they run you straight through into the next show without any commercial interruptions in between the hour. And so you're hooked into the next show before the, the previous one is over. Anyway, there's a show on HGTV where a couple hires a... Um, a consultant, a, a, a realtor, a, a designer of some sort to help them sell their house. And a, the designer comes in and the job of this designer, this realtor, is to, is to basically to come in there and diss everything. You know, it's like, oh, this carpet is so ugly or I can't believe you have that mirror on the wall or this tile has got to go. And of course, the couple are shocked, you know my father put in that tile, or that's my favorite mirror, or whatever. They're, they're completely surprised. But that's the whole point, and that's why it's funny, is because we're laughing at the fact that they're surprised. Well, it's not so funny when you're on the receiving end of that. And that's what God is telling us here, is that he's surprising us. He wants to surprise us. He wants to surprise you today with the places and with the activities and with the beliefs of your life that are vain. He wants to catch you off guard. Not because he's tricking you, but because he loves you. And he wants all of you. And he wants you to delight in all of him. And not to sell short your faith and your experience of his grace by settling for something less than the full purchase price of your redemption. Surprise, surprise. We need Jesus. We need him completely. We need him every hour of every day. We do not just need Jesus at the beginning of our faith. We do not just need him in the middle of our faith. We need him from beginning to end, from top to bottom. We need the blood of Christ to cleanse us from all of our vanity every day. And that's what church is about. 
It's an assembly of sinners saved by grace who are united in this one thought, in this one belief, that Jesus is the only solution to the vanity that I experience. I think God, in explaining this solution, I'm going to explain the solution here in this next little section a little bit, is telling us something like this. Quit trying to make your life meaningful. You can't. You can't put meaning into your life. You can't do it. And that goes against everything that we've been taught, everything that I've been taught. And it leads me to the only possible answer, which is to trust in Christ. I read this interesting quote by C.S. Lewis from his book on miracles that I think exposes this a little bit. He says, and I quote, it is a profound mistake to imagine that Christianity ever intended to dissipate the bewilderment, the terror, the sense of our own nothingness when we think of the nature of things. No, it comes to intensify them. The reason that God gives the faith, the Christian faith, is not to get rid of our discomfort. In a way, I think what Lewis is saying is, it's to amplify our discomfort. It's to turn up the volume on the meaninglessness of life apart from God. And in turning up the volume, in exposing all of that, we're in a great place to be received into the arms of our Savior. Our sense of weakness, our sense of powerlessness, our sense of fear are not to be covered over or filled in by turning on the TV or turning on the iPod or the radio or calling your friends or in the comic that I recently read, again, it's one panel, very simple. It said there's a, there's a woman in the panel who's speaking to her dog, and we all do that. Just admit it, it's okay. Speaking to her dog, and she's shaking her finger. We may not do this. Sit, stand, roll over, make up for all that's meaningless in my life. I mean, this is what we do. We have these things that we do and the things that we say to deal with the frustration of our, of our meaninglessness, the frustration of our troubles, the, the angst that hangs on everything that we go through. And we blame and we shame and we punish people and things and all around us as opposed to simply surrendering and quitting and saying, okay, God, you're in charge. You're building the house with meaning with a capital M. Unless you build this house, I'm building in vain. I thought of reading the parable here of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And some of you may know the song. The wise man builds his... You've all been to Vacation Bible School. That's very good. <laughs> right? And you go like this. Is that simple reminder, does that communicate for some of you? You see, the winds come and the rains come and they beat on that house that's built on the rock and it doesn't move doesn't move. 
I thought I'd illustrate this also by describing a bike ramp that one of my boys and some of his friends tried to build for a little making jumps out in our street. And we had some lumber in the garage, and they, they got some nails and a hammer, and they built a bike ramp. And this thing looked more like a lethal weapon than a bike <laughs> ramp, let me tell you. Uh, and it didn't last. They went over it a couple of times, and the thing just disintegrated. And so this is what we do, isn't it? We build things without instructions, on our own, with our own creativity, with our own ideas, own, own, self, self, and it doesn't support us. It doesn't help us. It doesn't cure us. It doesn't save us. And so someone, a father, a father from heaven who gives good gifts, comes to us in gentleness and acceptance and love and says, my son, my daughter, let me help you build. Let me build for you. And his building often involves some demo, some demolition. When I rebuilt that ramp, I had to tear it apart and start from scratch. And that's, that's hard work, tearing stuff down, isn't it? And that's how he builds. I, I, thought of the, I thought of the popular Christian band Rush of Fools with this phrase from their song, Undo. Turn me around, pick me up. Undo what I've become. Bring me back to the place of forgiveness and grace. I need you. I need your help. I can't do this myself. You're the only one who can undo what I've become. I love that. God, how's that for a prayer? There's an application right there. Pray this prayer. God, undo what I have become. Take the claw hammer Pry out those nails. Take those scraps of wood and discard them and replace them with the material that comes from heaven, that comes from Jesus. We must become what we are not. That's the gospel message. We must repent. We must cry out to God for mercy. We must cling to him for grace. We must believe that it is possible what we never thought possible, that a meaningless and empty life can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And yes, Presbyterians believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that heaven itself opens and the Spirit of God literally, spiritually, descends upon the person who cries out to God for meeting and he who seeks will not be refused. We believe that. We believe that God changes lives and that he is in the midst of changing the lives of the people that are listening to this message today. So some practical applications in conclusion. Something that we can really take away. Number one, think about a part of your life where you've decided to do something because of other people instead of God. Think about that. Tomorrow, think about that part of your life that you are doing because of someone else. That's vanity. Number two, Identify an area where you are pretending you have purpose, but secretly you wonder. There's vanity there. That's a surprise visit from the realtor saying, that rug's got to go. Three, write down something that really bothers you, something you do 
or something that others do. I believe this may be an area of your life where you're resisting the meaning that God is trying to send to you. Some place in your life that really bothers you, consistently gets you out of sorts. And four, finally, tell someone that you trust or your spouse, hopefully that's someone you trust, one way that you think that you're building in vain. Say it. Say it out loud. Say out loud to someone you trust, this is how I think I'm building in vain. I started out this morning by painting a picture from a famous movie, The Godfather, in the final scene where Michael Corleone falls to the ground dead. I'd like you to picture now that scene, that chair. And instead of Michael in that chair, Michael, picture yourself. Picture yourself in that chair. It's the end of your life. How are you feeling? The, the screen fades to black and your days are done. Have you lived your life with the meaning that God intends? And rather than feel bad, now picture another person in that chair, Jesus Christ. He lived and died, if you'll permit me the analogy, a meaningless life so that your life could have meaning. He died a vain death so that you don't have to live a vain life. He is the center and the ground of all our meaning. Go to Him. Trust in Him. Pray to Him. And He will help. Let us pray. God, we are indeed a needy people. And without in any way delighting in this, I do pray that your people who have heard this this morning will have, been, will have been taken out of their place of comfort and perhaps exposed to some parts of their life, of their house, that is lacking the meaning and the significance that you desire to give it, whether it be in parenting or in our schoolwork, in our jobs, Lord, and as we speculate about our future, whether we wrestle with sickness or tragedy, God, wherever it may be, expose us. Lord, we need to be exposed to that pain so we can receive your grace. We ask that you would do this both this morning and throughout this week and encourage us as you do so with your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.